From VinePair's New York City headquarters, this is End of Day Drinks, where we sit down with the movers and shakers in the beverage industry. So pour yourself a glass and listen along with us. Let's start the show. On this week's episode of End of Day Drinks, we're talking with Kim and Erica Crawford, the winemaking couple behind that super well-known, famous Sauvignon Blanc, Kim Crawford. The couple sold Kim Crawford years ago, so we'll also talk with them about their new project, Love Blanc. During the conversation, we'll hit on what has caused New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc to become such a phenomenon, how Kim Crawford, the wine, became sort of the ambassador for all New Zealand Savvy B, and the difference between that project and their new one, Love Block. So sit down, pour yourself a glass of wine, and listen on in. It's a great conversation. Hello, and welcome to VinePair's End of Day Drinks podcast. I'm Katie Brown, VinePair's Associate Editor, and I'm very excited to welcome Kim and Erica Crawford, the husband and wife duo behind Love Block Winery in New Zealand. Welcome. Hi, good morning. Morning. I'm also joined today by my colleagues on VinePair's editorial team, Kat Walensky, senior editor. Hi, everyone. Joanna Sherino, executive editor. Hi, Kim and Erica. Morning. And Keith Beavers, our tastings director. Hey, everybody. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, we're so excited for you guys to be here, and we're, we have a lot of questions for you guys. But first of all, it is Vine Pairs Partnerships Month, um, and we're recording this in February. So we're really excited to ask you guys, as a husband and wife duo, what it's like to work together at Love Block. Challenging. <laughs> We've been working together since, gosh, 1996. Um, so, yeah, I mean, of course it's challenging because, you know, we've got very strong opinions each and, and they don't always align. So um, there's definitely vigorous debate. Mm. And who usually wins those? <laughs> <laughs> Depending. <laughs> That's so funny. I think it's good in a way for a marriage because we tend to argue more about work than we do about personal relationships. So it's been good from that perspective as well. Yeah, you get your frustration out, um, you know, discussing wine styles or, you know, how to prune a vine instead of, um, instead of you know, being irritated by someone leaving the toothpaste open on the... <laughs> <laughs> so you don't sweat the small stuff. That's good to know. <laughs> Try not to. You twisted that wine the vine the wrong way. <laughs> you did it again. So when you started the Kim Crawford brand, did you guys have any idea that it would blow up in the United States market the way it did? No idea. It was really made for the UK, wasn't it, Kim? Mm. Yeah, it was made for the UK on trade. I had met David Gleave, who used to own Liberty Wines in the UK, and he was looking for some entry-level products from New Zealand, so that's how it started. And, you know, we made how many cases? 4,000 cases. And it was all meant to go to the UK. And then he lost his job with the with the importing company. And so we ended up going to a local um, distributor here, cap in hand, asking them to please, please take this brand. Uh, but we really went to the US in 1997, so really at the beginning of the, of, of the New Zealand wave. And, you know, it was so amazing. 
During that time, we sold as much Merlot as we sold Sauvignon. We sold more Anouk Chardonnay than we sold Sauvignon. We sold things like Riesling, all sorts of things. And it was a completely different market. You know, people didn't know where New Zealand was. Um, they think we're part. They thought we're part of Australia. Right. Um, so it was really pioneering. You know, and every restaurant was just an amazing triumph. Um, so it was really exciting. If you don't mind me asking a question about that, um, when you were in you were in the United States, I'm sorry, were you in the United States try, selling it? You said you were going to the UK. Initially to the UK. Oh, okay. And then he, that guy lost his job. And then we went to, uh, to two or three years later, you know, knocked on the door of um, Hogue Cellars. And they took us on and, um, you know, and an importation. Well, so did you, I was just curious, like, how did you, was there a moment that you were like, okay, this is going to be, this is, this is, this is working. Like, did, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is people and, you, you know, you were saying that you, the, there was like, everyone was drinking, there was a completely different drinking preference back in that, at that point. Was Sauvignon Blanc part of that? And, and, and when did it, I mean, at some point Sauvignon Blanc became that. So I didn't know if you, were you, were you, a, 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 did you kind of see that transition? I think it all happened when we got 90 points in Spectator. The first time we got 90 points in Spectator, ah. we just flew. Yeah, but that was – so two reasons. Um, three reasons, I think. Um, but that was only 2002. Two. But that was happened at the same time. So I think a few things happened. So we – I think we were the third company into the U.S. And, you know, we, we didn't have money. We just um, We just did it on a shoestring. And it's also that sweet thing that you don't know what you don't know, you know. You just um, we just forged ahead, and and I think two things: just that um, incredibly zesty, jubilant Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand really, really appealed to the U to the US palate. But I think the real thing that tipped New Zealand as a category over um, was uh, Lord of the Rings, because suddenly. <laughs> Everybody was aware of New Zealand, so that helped right. the whole category. Right. Um, yeah, we we I think the brand definitely had its own charm before it got um, before Lord of the Rings, and so when Lord of the Rings happened, we had good distribution, we had good penetration and distribution, and then the brand just flew. Did we ever think um, it was going to get as big as this? Not really. Wow. Right. Do you guys feel kind of responsible in a way for creating that concept of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and popularizing it? I I feel very proud that we did. Thank you. Mm, I think well, now it's a category and it's not many people have done that in their lifetimes, I don't think. No. Maybe two or three people have created a category in the US and it's quite nice to be one of those. Yeah, definitely. Big category. <laughs> yeah, but also we don't really lurk on that sort of, uh, because life is so busy and, you know, the, the kids and the vineyards and getting ready for the next thing. We moved on pretty swiftly, didn't we, Mike? So I have a question for you both about the, not just the Simon Blanc style, but your, the way that you've made it in the past versus now at Love Block. This is Kat, by the way. Um, so I've had... Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc recently, and I like it. Um, I know you don't own that winery anymore. And I've also had 
love Black Sauvignon Blanc recently, and it was one of Vine Pear's top 50 wines of the year in 2020. I'm having it again right now, and certainly they are distinct. Um, for those who are fans of Kim Crawford and the brand and don't realize that you've sold it and started something new uh, and totally different, how would you describe the difference between the Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc and the Love Block Sauvignon Blanc? I always um, compare them to stages in life. So to me, Kim Crawford's a teenage boy. He's there, he's throwing out his hormones to the world and he's saying, here I am, come and get me. And <laughs> Love Block's more, more a mature woman saying, I know what I've got and I know how to use it. So Oh, I like that. My, my descriptors <laughs> of the two wines, I mean, Kim Crawford was designed to be in your face and explosive in the glass, whereas hopefully we've got a little, a little bit more maturity and a bit of more age on the Love blocks of a new blanc. I think that's. Um, I think what really is important, obviously, the bulk of the category is in that, is in that, um, you know, jubilant, big, aromatic style. Mm -hmm. um, when we started Love Block, I said to Kim over that. So, I mean, a few things obviously influence what we do at Love Block, apart from our own preference, what we want to drink, but it's also you know the organic um, and sustainable vineyard management yes gives you a different expression it's you know because we we all the wine is made as if it's organic even if it's not so you can't do all the tricks that you usually do um to get those big flavors so it's i think the wine's probably a bit more honest because it's not tinkered um in the vineyard and and in the winery because in the winery there's a lot of manipulation and they can mm. Well, not anymore, there's not. No, but generally to make a classic, yeah. a classic style. Right. Yeah. Interesting. What are some of those tricks you're referring to? Well, I mean, the big, the big problem with the people have got now is they've got so much to put through their plants in a two-week period. So marble comes off in two weeks in the, in the sort of a, in terms of ripeness. So the big companies have already put out their harvest dates, even though they're two months away from harvest. Mm. The growers have already got their harvest dates, which is not what we like to do. We we pick on flavour rather than on a on a um, recipe type program. I, I think also that um, I mean in the winery also that you restricted and constrained by what you do. For instance, um, for instance, sulphur, you know. We the sulfur in the in the wine is always at about sixty percent of what it would normally be, um, because organic winemaking directs that you've got to be below a hundred parts per million, and usually, and this comes back to style, when the grapes are picked, we put some sulfur and ascorbic acid right on top of the grapes to protect um, to protect from the phenolics. So we can't mm. do that, and we don't do that. So we only do a post-fermentation addition of sulfur. And, and so it means, that the, I think it means that, you know, that, that initial protection obviously, you know, protects the big file flavors and things. So the flavor of the wine, the precursors, and, 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 and we don't do that. So that's why on the nose, you'll automatically see that's a little bit more quiet. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think that's why it's so unique is that quiet nature. Yeah, I mean, as Kim says, you know, we've, we've done our screaming and shouting, haven't we? Mm. 
I also think that um, I also think that um, you know drinking trends. People mature in their um, palates as well. And what we've seen in twenty years. Well, how long have we been in the US? Twenty three or so. Mm. You know, and you go back to the same people. I remember going to Seattle to a restaurant. That beautiful one. Anyway, it's one of those beautiful old restaurants. And the guy said, "Oh, not another bloody Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc." But so so. so so it's <laughs> also mature and you know and then new ones come in so i think it's a maturation of a our vineyard management b our skills as winemakers and and see where the how the palettes are maturing you know or or changing um just my view Erica, you mentioned sustainability before. Why is sustainability important to you and to Love Block? I mean, I think that, you know, of course, New Zealand across the board has a reasonably strong sustainable program, but um, and it, it has various planks and, and pillars, but we do loads more. I think it's 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 very much a personal value and and principles that I live by, you know, for me, it sort of started really in my mid-30s, early mid-30s, when, you know, when life just happens around you and dramas happen and the world collapses and you lose concentration, you smack into the back of the garage wall, don't you? So I had one of those moments and um, they told me that I presented like a 55-year-old corporate businessman and, of course, I was neither. So I started cleaning up my life, you know. Started, yeah, the first thing that went was Diet Coke. And then I started learning food labels and cutting things out. So we live pretty simply, you know. We try and make everything from scratch. Kimmy here, he likes the two-minute noodles, so he indulges in that. Um, <laughs> I can't blame him. They're delicious. Yeah, and then I looked at skincare, what I put on my skin, and then we look at how we clean the house. So it was just a logical step. The next step was quite logical to take Lock Lock to that into that realm um, of organics and deep sustainability. So this is key. That was on that, um, along with that. So when you went to, was the idea of Love Block initially, like we were going to do this and it's going to be organic and this is what it's going to be. And also like, did you do this organic thing in Marlboro at a time when there wasn't a lot of organics or is it, is it like, how friendly to organic was the region when you started the idea? When it came to me, not really. I mean, there was a uh, there were a few producers. One in Gisborne, um, I think Saracen was very active in Marlborough at the time. Oh, yeah, and from so so not really. But for me, it, I guess it's a personal journey that just started with my immediate environment, and we always knew we we're going to do wine again. Um, and and it is really a just a one in a million year opportunity to truly live your values. Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a big, mm. it's a, it's huge, you know, making that big change in your life and then eventually using that kind of discipline and putting it into winemaking is huge. Yeah. And we both had to learn a lot, you know, we, um, vineyard management is quite different and it's a, it's a lot more, it's a lot more risky in some respects. And I mean, Kim's winemaking had to change completely, didn't it? Right. Okay. In what way? Well, like if we want to change the, say, take some acid out of the wine, I use malolactic fermentation rather than just adding some chemicals to do the job for me. So it's, 
it's more, I suppose, more natural the way we're making the wines. We've got a lot of barrels and alternative vessels now in Sauvignon Blanc, which is quite good for the blend. Um, that's all done with natural fermentation. So we're slowly, slowly moving, I suppose, into a more natural playground with it. We don't add sulfur in the score because Eric has said in the um, vineyard anymore, but we do add a green tea, which is an antioxidant, which seems to do the same job, but doesn't have the the lingering effects of a sulfur. So we actually have one wine now which has no sulfur added at all. So it's going quite nicely as well. So. And would you say that that style of winemaking is, is more time consuming or what about it, yes. I guess, is, yes. Okay, so it's it's more time consuming and just more uh, labor intensive in general. Yeah, and you can't you can't make a mistake, I suppose, with, with uh, um with conventional winemaking, you can usually find if you make a make something that's too tannic, you can usually just find it out. And with the organics, we haven't got the same toolbox available. So quite often, especially in New Zealand, because the organic winemaking is such a small part of the business, there's no no one's bothered to register the product, so we can't use anything. So you've got to be very careful and not make a mistake. Otherwise, you've got nothing to fix your mistake. And similarly, you know, our vineyard management changed quite a lot as well so you don't only look at the vineyard so um you know we practice um basically topsoil regeneration so it's that whole regenerative farming that we do so soil is at the heart of everything and so we don't use um for most of the vineyards or the certified vineyards we don't use herbicides and chemicals so but apart even in the non-organic vineyards you know, we practice that regenerative um, farming. So use cover crops and try and look after the soil and compost particularly. We look at things like waste recycling. So we make a lot of compost, as I say. We use animals in the vineyards. So that's not only the, the sheep, but also cattle and, um, and chickens. And, um, of course, really focus on biodiversity. Uh, because, you know, he mentioned the natural ferments and what we've noticed certainly around the the organic vineyards, they tend to go off on their own ferments um, quite readily oh, now. And No, I'm sorry, that was interesting. I love that. I love hearing that. That's really awesome. Yeah, and biodiversity is, is really obviously also quite important because, you know, Marlborough, if you look at it, it was something where people planted flowers and onions and sheep stations and cattle now it's pretty much wine. It's like Napa. Oh. And it's pretty much one clone. And so biodiversity is so important just as protection. If a, a virus tears loose in that one clone, you know, it'll be disastrous for Marlborough. So we really focus on biodiversity as well. And, and then we do things like, you know, I'm really into permaculture. So that whole belief that people who work on the farm should be fed from the farm. Right. So, so you know, we the whole farm is a certified unit. So the grazing paddocks and the cattle. So the staff, you know, we they can they access vegetables, they access meat, and stuff like that. So it's 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 wonderful to be part of that. Actually, wow! I have so many questions after that. <laughs> this is Kat, <laughs> Erica. Tell me about the animals. So you said you have cattle, sheep, chickens. I mean, how are in what way are you using these on the farm, um, and how are they contributing to that biodiversity? 
So obviously, um, I mean, the property is quite hilly and well, we can't plant on most of the property. So we use the cattle there to initially just to keep the grass low to prevent fires from happening. And then I looked at the one day and I said to Kim, I think we could actually sell Lothblock organic grass-fed beef. So, so even, they are now all certified. So that's what we can start doing now. But they also act as lawn mowers just after vintage before we prune. Um, to just get rid of the first lot of weeds and then the sheep come in and do the same thing and of course they poop here and then they eat over there so they you know it's a it's it's not the okay. same thing going on the same vineyard all the time um they're contributing their own love to the love block yeah they do and the chickens scratch and run around and are generally a little bit irritating aren't they mm. <laughs> But nobody messes with uh, the soil or, or the vines in a way that is unwanted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, our biggest challenge is the undervine management. So, of course, mm -hmm. when you grow a vine and you irrigate, the weeds are also going to grow. So that's, uh, for organic wine growers, that's our biggest issue to deal with. Um, mm. And we invest quite heavily on getting the right equipment to get rid of that stuff so that the vine has the opportunity to grow in a in a relatively less competitive environment. So right. it sounds like you guys either adhere to or follow the biodynamic practices. Um the not Demeter certification. There's a certification, you know, for if you're if you want to be biodynamic, you can get certified. Or organic. Do you guys practice these agricultural um practices? Sorry, it is redundant. Um, or are you adhering to a specific kind of uh, uh, regime that is kind of like taught by the biodynamic community? Or you're just like, you're reading it, looking at it going, hey, this is awesome. We want to use it to make great wine. That's pretty much it. I think with biodynamics, that's sort of a higher form of organics, of right. course. And that's a holistic system where you do things by the sun and the moon. So for instance, you know, we look at when we pick the grapes that's on a, a fruit day, fruit or a, a fruit or a flower day. And you can do all sorts of things by the cycles of the moon, of course. And some we, we haven't got that sort of capability in the winery yet. But, you know, some people look at the ascending moon and the descending moon and do things. At the moment, we're using three preps um, and we'll ex be expanding that. So... We try to do things by the biodynamic calendar, but we're not fully there yet. You know, it's a long journey. Right. Um, yeah, I think I think you have to be certified to be certified. Right, yeah. right, right. So I mean, I believe in a lot of the practices. I mean, we we do carry out a lot of the practices, but some things are just a step too far. Or no, I, well, we're not really, really we're not really, really we're not really for it. because it's a philosophy, yeah. you know, and it's such a big learning. It's such a big learning path, and. And that's what, yeah, we're learning. That's just a, yeah. that's you know, we do, the, we do the cow pit pack things and, uh, yeah, so it's pretty agricultural. That's great. I just love that you guys are doing what you're basically saying, like, this is what the earth wants. This is what we're going to do. We're, we're not adhering to this or that. We're not certified. We would be certified to get certified. So we're just making good practices for the land to make great wine. That's awesome. Yeah. Some of, some of the vineyards are certified organic. Um, and we're expanding that handprint more and more. Um, but it's not always possible, especially with the undervine, you know, our, our vineyards are very stony. And also we've got some 
So one of the vineyards is planted on a hill and it's surrounded by pasture. So we've got one bug that comes out end of November called grass grip here, and it just destroys the vine. Oh. So until we can until we can net the vineyard completely, which would be hellishly expensive, we we have to spray, unfortunately. So yeah, that's uh, on some of the vineyards. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, only some. There it is. There's, Makes total sense. We have 110 hectares planted. What's that in acres? 250-ish. Oh. So it's a bit of vineyard land, yeah, you know? Small. Yeah. So to switch gears a little bit here, um, I've been curious. So obviously, Americans, we know and love New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, partially because of you guys. Um, but I was wondering, what other varieties should we be looking out for from New Zealand? What else is exciting you guys that's coming out from uh you know, New Zealand vineyards, like your own and others? Okay, so, I mean, we put our stake in the ground with Pinot Gris. Nice. And I'm very pleased to announce that we've, we're finally seeing a lift in sales in Pinot Exciting. Gris. And it's in the little independent um, restaurants and or, or now wine shops that are doing that. And uh, because it's not the Pinot Grigio style, it's made quite differently, picked at a different time. It's made more in an Oregon style than a Pinot Grigio that's style. I was asking. So. That, that's oh, awesome. Wow. That's the thing, Oregon's really killing it with Pinot Gris. It seems like Pinot Gris is kind of in the air right now. It's perfect timing. Yeah, I think we're riding on the back of them. Yeah, and they've done a good job with price points. They're sitting around that sort of 18 to $20, which was where everybody needs to be to make, make right. a dollar. Because we don't crop anywhere near as high, so Pinot Gris will crop it maybe three to four tons an acre, whereas in Italy it'll crop at 15 to 20. Mm. Uh, you know, we can't we can't get down to Pinot Grigio price. So Right. And then, of course, the other thing that I think New Zealand is um, getting known for is Pinot Noir, of course. Yeah, is the Central, how's Central Otago doing on the uh, world market? I'm, I, I mean, I am in love with the wines. I think they're really great, and you guys make a great Otago. Um, just wondering, like, how how are you guys faring with with that? I mean, it's a specifically beautiful style of Pinot Noir, and, and it's so different and unique than all the other styles available on the planet. So I'm just curious how that's going. Um, I think, I mean, people don't expect it from New Zealand, but it has been growing. Um, mm. It has been growing, uh, and there's a lot more planted down there, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's sort of it's one of the regions that we've got. Problem on New Zealand now is apples, cherries, and kiwi. kiwi fruit are competing against grapes in terms of land use. Mm. So Central Otago is big, big cherry producing area now. So the land's mm. actually becoming reasonably scarce down there, and your returns on cherries, and as long as we don't get rain, are say a hundred thousand dollars an acre gross return. Whereas grapes, you might be down at ten to fifteen. So it's quite, a, but the cherries are far more expensive to set up than the grapes are. So, mm. but yeah, stylistically, there's quite a bit of difference depending on the subregions in Central Otago. It tends to get lumped together, but harvest will be will be six weeks earlier than some people because of where our vineyard is in Bendigo. Oh, so, that's interesting. Yeah, that's exciting. I think that's that's an exciting thing right there. Subregions in New Zealand. I, I think that's something that we should talk more about on the American market because of because of how unique and diverse the land in New Zealand is. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's basically, if you look at California, uh, you know, the top is quite different to the bottom, isn't it? 
in New Zealand's a bit like that because it sits straight down the latitudes. Mm. We're nearly the length of California, and we're only okay, 80 miles wide at the, at the widest. Like that, yeah. mm. So we're very long and skinny. And so, full of mountains. <laughs> right. So we don't get hugely, like say on the East Coast, there's plenty of snow and stuff. Like we very seldom get snow. We get a little bit on the vineyard in Central, but never in Marlborough. Oh, right. And where, where we live in Auckland now, I mean, if we get a frost, that's a hell of a surprise. Wow. Yeah, definitely not the Northeast. <laughs> yeah. It's really snowing here a lot this year. Oh. It is, I'm sure. I tell you what, I would give my hind leg to be oh, there Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We would do the same for Auckland. I promise you that. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful day here. Not a cloud in the sky. Uh, we, have all, we have all clouds. We, we have all the clouds. It came over here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, speaking of coasts and clouds, <laughs> uh, I know I thought it was kind of funny when we started this conversation. Uh, Erica and Kim, you both said good morning. But we are at the end of the day here on the East Coast in New York. So... A final question that I have for you is, you know, we're wrapping up the day. I'm drinking the Sauvignon Blanc right now. What should I pair this with for like a late afternoon before dinner nice snack? Ooh, anything really. Um, oysters is always a favorite um, for me with Sauvignon. Um, and I think the goat cheese, of course, is a, is a well-known pair for it. Anything with that, that strong flavors, really. It carries yeah. strong flavors very well. Mm. Sashimi, sushi. Mm. Okay, I could do sushi. Mm. How about like Triscuit crackers with dill on it? That's what I have in my cabinet right now. <laughs> well, you know, I was, you know how you know how women always eat or people always eat salad, Ugh. and it messes it messes the wine up, doesn't it? Because you, you, it leaves you with a really bitter. It kills yeah, the fat. Yeah, salad. No way. Yeah, salad. Salad's wicked. But I think Sauvignon Blanc, I think Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand really stands up to that. So it's for me the only wine you can really have with a salad. Salad with goat cheese. That yeah, goat I can, cheese I and Sauvignon Blanc yeah. is mm. goat cheese salad with Love Block Sauvignon Blanc. Just I'm going to log off and do that right now. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> you can go on and do that. Thank you for the suggestion. <laughs> Well, Kim and Erica, thank you so much for joining us and making me super hungry. Um, It's been so nice talking to you guys about New Zealand wine and Love Blog and everything that's next for New Zealand. So um, we've loved having you on and hopefully we can get a drink in person sometime. Thank you so much. Yeah, we do hope to get there um, sometime in the future. God knows when. It won't be this year. That's for sure. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of EOD Drinks. If you've enjoyed this program, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show. And tell your friends. We want as many people as possible listening to this amazing program. And now for the credits. End of Day Drinks is recorded live in New York City at VinePairs headquarters. And it is produced, edited, and engineered by VinePairs Station Director, yes, he wears a lot of hats, Keith Beavers. I also want to give a special thanks to Fine Pair's co-founder, Josh Mallon, to the executive editor, Joanna Schiarino, to our senior editor, Kat Walensky, our senior staff writer, Tim McCurdy, and our associate editor, Katie Brown. And a special shout out to Danielle Greenberg, Fine Pair's art director who designed the sick logo for this program. 
The music for End of Day Drinks was produced, written, and recorded by Darby Seaside. I'm Vine Pair co-founder Adam Teeter, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.